All right, what is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, what have you been up to this week, dude? Man, uh, it's been a good week so far. Uh, I think, you know, we've been on the line either on the podcast itself or on a personal coaching call, you and I, uh, every week. So obviously, we know what's going on in each other's lives, but I've been preparing for a photo shoot and I actually just had my first one yesterday. Um, so I had it last night at the beach. Beautiful night. I, I was very fortunate that it was great weather. Uh, came out really well. Um, I have a tradition and it's funny because um, our buddy, Brian Borstein has the same thing, but I've been shooting with a particular group of photographers. I've been doing, um, you know, fitness modeling for going on a little bit over 10 years at this point. And so I have a group of fitness photographers that I've worked with for some, it's been 10 years, some it's been like five years, but I have a, a very good friend who's actually an IFBB pro who got into uh, photography a few years ago. And I was one of the first people he came to. And and so initially he was just trying to get his feet wet. His name's, you know, shout out to him, Gennaro Brigante. He was an IFBB pro, you know, competitive athlete. Um, so he's really good, not only behind the camera, but he understands what it's like to be in front of the camera because he's done it. Right. So last night we went to a local beach uh, near him, uh, did a beach photo shoot, more of like fitness fashion, stuff like that. But um, I will say, you know, last summer I had surgery and they cut into my abdomen. And so I've had two surgeries on my abdominal cavity. And I will tell you just even the flexing, and this is something we talk about in your check-in pictures. It is not only an art, but it's in a practice and a skill. And so I, I'll tell you to contract my abs and be able to hold it and stuff. It was something I almost felt like a fish out of water. Really? You know I mean? Hitting these poses. Yeah. Because I was so used to, uh, previously I used to do between eight to 12 shoots a summer. And last summer was the first year I didn't do that. And then this summer, this is my first shoot of the summer, um, officially. So I just needed to get back into the swing of things, but I have a shoot coming up next week, one the following week. So I will be banging them out, but it was good to get practice with someone, first of all, that I know that I'm familiar with. And then also what we do is, and the reason I, I reference Brian is he does something very similarly where he goes to familiar locations and he gets shoots done throughout the course of the year. He does it specifically just with one shoot. I do this with a group of photographers. And so I will go see in two weeks, another photographer that I've actually been working with every single summer we've shot at Wildwood Beach, which is a, like a scenic location in um, the East coast uh, on the shore. And we've shot every single summer since 2015. So this will be our eighth summer shooting together. So I have like a full catalog from him of shoots and I do a comparative analysis year to year. And it doesn't mean that I always get better, but it's like, I learned something about myself or it brings me back and it's nice to be able to compare and contrast the years and just see not only the progression physically, but also it's it's just the, the act of being able to push myself. And even last year, uh, right prior to going into surgery, three days out from surgery, I went and shot with them. So okay. we didn't miss a tradition. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, it's something I really look forward to. How do you feel like you're stacking up this year relative to the last few? I'm going to be honest. So I'm, you know, I'm an extremely objective person. My physique is not where it's been previously. Um, and you know what, at first I was, I was really disappointed with that, but I also have to consider the fact that I was in a car accident. Um, I had two surgeries last summer. And so can I really expect that at this point in my training career that I could be at the same level that I was at, um, especially with running a business, a business that is continually growing. And this is something that I, I touched in on your check-in this week. Yeah. Like we have to realize like you're in a fat loss phase now. And it, the actual context of the, the conversation was around the fact that we cannot ex expect the same rate of progress whether it be in a, a rate of fat loss or rate of um, you know positive progression within the gym when we're in high stress periods of our lives or of our businesses. And it's that's not a cop-out, but it has to be, you know, I always say the statement, we cannot separate psychology from physiology. And what a lot of people don't realize is there are so many mechanisms that underlie our ability to adapt to training. So for instance, we see that in college because we do a lot of, you know, a lot of the research is done in, in college students because it's at universities over the course of a semester. And they see with athletic populations as well as recreationally trained um, college, you know, um, individuals that during times of high stress, like during exam periods, they adapt less to resistance training. So they see less increases in strength and hypertrophy outcomes. And that's only in the context of a two to three week period of exam time. So right. imagine now being an adult and having responsibilities of a mortgage and a business on top of you and, and so many people that are relying on you, whether it be clients or mentees or whoever it may be, your family members. And so we have to always take that into consideration. Like I can't expect my physique to be at the same level as it was when I was competing on a national level and bodybuilding was my everything. So I, I try to be really objective with myself. I am a harsh critic as I think we all are, but I also realize that 
I'm pushing myself to the utmost limit of what I can do currently within the context. I always say I'm trying to optimize within the constraints of my lifestyle and my lifestyle in 2022 is much different than it was in 2017. You know, when I was very competitive, I was, you know, top 10 in the country within competing. So I always have to take that, you know, we have to take things with a grain of salt and not beat ourselves up and just realize whether we're physically progressing, you know, if we see like a tangible physique progression, that's not the, the end all be all. You know, if that was all it was about, then the minute that we hit our, you know, and I don't believe that we'll ever know our genetic ceiling, but the minute we stop seeing tangible progress week to week or month to month, we would just stop training. But this is for me about the process. This is about being a great representative um, to my clients and to everyone that that looks to me as, a, you know, not only a person that, you know, puts out educational content, but also walks the walk. So it, it's more than just about the physique in and of itself. It's who I've become in the process and who I will continue to be and the standard that I hold myself to. Absolutely, man. And I think just understanding like expectations for what you're willing to or realistically can put into the process is so important. Like I had this conversation about a year ago now with a client, like he was comparing himself to Steve Hall. And I was like, dude, you run a business. You have, I mean, Steve runs a business too, but Steve like lives and breathes natural bodybuilding uh, for the longest time. He was training twice a day. And it's like, man, like you have to understand like the things that he is doing is like at the highest level. And like, it's okay if you can't do those things. Like I'm not willing to do things to that level and like, it's okay. But we also have to understand like that is going to carry over to our results. You can't like compare your results to his results in the same timeframe, given like you aren't willing to, or just can't actually do that thing those things to the level you want and hold the rest of your life together. And I think that's just an important thing for people to realize. No, absolutely. And I think what we really have to realize, we have to take a step back and be objective with ourselves, which is really difficult. But I also think that, and and I don't want to put blame on this because a lot of people, they'll have like this black or white viewpoint on certain topics, whether it's nutrition, whether it's good foods and bad foods, there's all these dichotomous relationships. But a lot of people either have a really good viewpoint on social media or a really negative viewpoint on social media. And I see both because social media has connected with people like yourself and other like-minded individuals. Some of my closest friends, I initially met through the online spaces, whether it was on forums. So my closest mentors, I met them through forum boards, or I met them on online publications, or I met them on social media. And and same thing with some of my closest friends and colleagues at this point. And so it's been an incredible blessing. But also, I was in the fitness space before there was ever social media. And I already was coaching before social media was prominent. I mean, I started online coaching before I had an Instagram or any of those things. And so I saw what it was like then, and then I see what it's like now. And even I fall into the trap sometimes, and then I have to quickly remind myself, but we we start comparing ourselves, whether it's calorie comparisons, oh, this person didn't diet on this, or it's physique comparisons, or it's rate of progress comparisons. And we're only seeing like a small piece of the picture. We are seeing one photo, technically. We're seeing a photo and we're seeing a caption and that's it. We're not seeing all the context within that person's lifestyle. And what we have to remember is this journey is about ourselves. It's about comparing ourselves against our previous selves, but also against what we're currently dealing with in terms of obstacles, challenges, setbacks, and being able to rise to the occasion and be the best version of ourselves within this moment. I always tell my clients, let's not look back on the past. Like, Say you have a slip up on the weekend within your diet. It, it's so important and vital to acknowledge that you slipped up to look for the root causes and the reasons for that, but also to not get so caught up and over analytical about the mistakes that you've made in the past that they hold you back and they prevent you from making progress moving forward. And I really see that within the context of social media as well, where a lot of people get so caught up on what others are doing or how others are progressing. Um, You know, great example, like you just said, Steve Hall, he's made incredible progress over the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. but he's, I'm sure if you asked him, if he's worried about how this natural bodybuilder is doing, he's probably not. He's probably not concerned, despite the fact that he runs a podcast where he interacts with a lot of these guys. He probably looks at it as motivating. That's what I see it as. You know, I work with a lot of top level pros and actually just this past week, I went to go visit one of my clients who you've met, uh, Anthony Scalza. So Mm -hmm. right now, Anthony and I are in a contest prep. He is six weeks out from his first show and we're doing three shows trying to get him back to the Olympia stage. And for those that aren't familiar with the IFBB, that's the paramount of this sport, the Olympia stage. He's been there once before. We're trying to get him back there. And, you know, I've known Anthony since we both competed in the same shows together when he was an amateur. And so my physique, his physique was always better than mine. I will never, you know, 
give him any less credit than than he deserves. However, there was a time that it was much more comparable. And I'm not at that, that point yet, but I'm still able to push him in the gym. I'm still able to bury him on some sets, just like he's able to put it back right back on me. And so it's it's a progression. It's competing against ourselves, but also rising to the occasion and pushing each other, but also realizing, hey, Anthony is taking my information, applying it and getting better progress. Could that frustrate me? Of course. I know so many, unfortunately, I know so many coaches that almost are, are jealous of their client's progression. And I'm not because I know that I'm I'm not only having a positive impact on his life as a physique athlete, but also as a fitness professional, because he's progressed immensely within that. And I'm happy to see his progress. He's in a, in a state in within his life where he has all the variables. And I always remind him of this. You are in the perfect environment. You have an incredible gym, a supportive work environment. You know, everything is aligned for us to maximize the moment and make the most out of your rate of progress within this moment. And we don't know what the next year, the next two years, three years are going to, um, you know, present us with in terms of challenges and setbacks or even life responsibilities. So right now, when the, the variables are as ideal as possible, let's make a run for it and just be the best, you know, become the best version of yourself. And also I never get caught up in his rate of progress. Like I'm, I'm very focused on helping him progress, but it's not this comparison like, Hey, we used to have a similar physique in terms of, you know, leanness or, or physique development. And now he's far, you know, exceeded me. It's like, dude, you're part of my circle. I want to see you grow. Just like, you know, I always tell you how, off air how proud i am of you with your business development we should be surrounding ourselves with people that bring us up and that make us want to raise our standards and the same thing with like education like we always go back and forth on that like i'm trying to set a new bar for the type of educational content that i put out and the way that i display myself as a fitness professional and it should be about that so we shouldn't use you know my you know, I know that you're very much in alignment with this, but my suggestion for anyone out there that listens to this or that goes on social media and feels discouraged, don't let the progress of others discourage you. Let it motivate you to become a better version of yourself. But at the same time, don't compare yourself to what those people are gaining or what they're attaining because you don't know what they're doing in the process to right. get there. And then like one last point on that, a lot of it's n everything isn't what it seems on social media either, where like one of the most helpful things for me, at least from a physique perspective, to stop comparing was to actually go to a conference with people in person. Mm -hmm. And like, it's like, man, on social media, like all these people are fucking jacked. And I thought I was going to be like, <laughs> and now it's ridiculous to me that I was even worried about this. But I remember like the first conference I went to, I was worried like, man, people are going to think like I'm super small and everybody's going to be judging me. And then I was like, oh, man, everybody here just looks pretty normal despite like how jacked everybody looks on social media. And That's the thing. Anyone without a pump, we, we all don't look that impressive. Let's be real. <laughs> it's, it's an unfortunate truth. And like, that's an idea. A lot of my coaches that are clients, that's an idea I have to get across as well. Where like, hey man, like realize, like I know like looking in the mirror, you don't feel like you look as jacked as like this guy you see on Instagram, but that's not how he looks when he looks in the mirror either, right? It's lighting, it's angles, especially like as a natural athlete, which I don't work with anyone on the enhanced side. Mm -hmm. But within that, I think like that's such an important thing to understand, but cool, man. I feel like that's very helpful. Let's go ahead and get into the topics for the day. So first one we have is which of the three mechanisms of hypertrophy do you think is the primary driver of hypertrophy? All right. Do you want me to take this first? Hey, good way, dude. All right, my man. Um, so just as like a little prelude, because I went back and forth with this individual, I just wanted to make sure because sometimes people reference the mechanisms of hypertrophy and then he got more specific with it. But the three mechanisms are mechanical tension, uh, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. And I just wanted to make sure because sometimes people reference the mechanisms and they really meant volume and intensity. They meant programming variables. So I wanted to make sure. But I think honestly, you know, I'm sure you can attest to this. I think it's safe to say that we all used to think of all three of these mechanisms as equal parts because initially, you know, back in like 2010, Brad uh, Schoenfeld during his master's thesis came out with this review entitled the mechanisms of muscular hypertrophy. And so we really took that as like the end all be all. And at that time, that's what the evidence had. Like that's what the evidence implied. That's all we had. But since that time, we've had a ton of data that's come out that's kind of questioned whether all three of these mechanisms are equal components or contributors to muscle growth. So for example, um, you know, since the year since then, we've had research by Damas and Flynn, which have showed that high amounts of muscle damage in particular could actually hinder growth. So for instance, in the Damas study, there's there's multiple Damas' studies, but he's an um, incredible researcher. So anyone out there that's interested in hypertrophy research, um, 
Damas, I think he's from Brazil. He's got an incredible research group. And uh, in his one study, they found that muscle damage was correlated with muscle protein breakdown, not actual muscle growth. So what they saw was when damage was high, the protein synthesis rates were high as well, but there was no growth at this point because when there's so much muscle damage, so when you incur so much muscle damage from training, that extra muscle protein synthesis is being allocated as a resource towards the extra rates of muscle protein breakdown. So it's being used to repair tissue, not to grow tissue. And then, so that's in a mechanistic fashion, but in the flan study, what they did was, and this is a really um, great comparison. They took two groups and essentially they put them on two different training programs. And in the one group, they had a three week intro block. So they had almost like an introductory microcycle to the mesocycle where it was lower volume and they kind of got them acclimated to training. Whereas in the other group, what they did was they took the same amount of training volume that the initial group was doing. So the initial group was three weeks of an introductory cycle with an eight week training program after. And so they took the total training volume of that 11 week group and they compressed it into eight weeks for the secondary group. So one group didn't get the intro block and sustained a ton more damage in the process from that training as they essentially were taking 11 weeks of training and just compressing it into eight weeks. But when they looked at the results, both groups got the same amount of hypertrophy because the volume was equated. So they did the same amount of training volume, same amount of work, yet the levels of muscle damage were vastly different. And when we actually look at like the correlational um, or like the indicators of muscle damage within the uh, group that got the introductory cycle, they had almost no detectable damage. Mm -hmm. So this is another example as to how muscle damage and muscle growth, there's no correlation between the two. So really, when we look at muscle damage, we have to realize that's just a byproduct of mechanical tension. If you have high levels, sufficient levels of mechanical tension, you have overloading training, you're going to get muscle damage in the process. You're going to get soreness. Now, when it comes to the other mechanism of hypertrophy, um, that would be metabolic stress. And I see this, I always describe this as a backdoor to increasing mechanical tension with lighter loads, because essentially what metabolic stress can do is it allows us to increase mechanical tension that we'd receive while using lighter weights because metabolic stress lowers the activation thrust threshold that we need to activate high threshold motor units. So usually what we see in like terms of uh, muscular recruitment, we'd only really get those high motor units recruited during heavier loads. Mm -hmm. But when we increase metabolic stress, we get full motor unit recruitment when using lighter loads. So this could be seen during like BFR or if you just do higher rep sets. So this is another variable. Like this is another mechanism I don't think we need to chase either. So as more and more data comes out, I go back again and again to mechanical tension as being the primary driver of growth. And I really think we look at anything, even just like within the context of any training intervention, any training program you've written a, a client or you've done yourself, it really is as long as you have sufficient tension, we can grow muscle. And generally damage and metabolic stress are going to come along for the ride, but those two independently of themselves are not going to drive hypertrophy by themselves. So if you just, you know, if you did like downhill running, downhill skiing, you wouldn't, you know, or a downhill um, running, you get a lot of muscle damage. You're not going to get carotid growth. If you just did high levels of metabolic stress. So for instance, there was one study where they took, and it was like a bicep study. And essentially what they did was they used occlusion after the sets. So what they did was they wanted to see if adding on metabolic stress increased hypertrophy. So they had each group, it was a crossover study, um, where essentially the groups would do, um, one arm would do bicep curls for a certain amount of reps and sets. And the other group would do the same amount of reps and sets and then get an occlusion cluff. So they would do BFR after. So it wasn't during the set, but it was after. So they applied an extra dose of metabolic stress. And what's interesting is the men did not see any growth whatsoever in comparison, like the same person did not see any growth between the right and left arm. So whether they had the regular bicep intervention or they had the bicep plus metabolic stress um, intervention. Now in the females, they actually saw less growth in the arm that was um, applied with the BFR. So in and of itself, they don't really know. They weren't able to tease out the mechanisms in that particular study. There's only one study that's looked at this that I'm aware of. And so it just shows that metabolic stress in and of itself isn't an independent driver of hypertrophy. So if we don't have mechanical tension, you don't have sufficient tension, you're not going to grow muscle, regardless of muscle damage is there, regardless of metabolic stress is there. Okay. So basically to sum that up, then it sounds like Muscle damage is essentially going to be a byproduct of us creating mechanical tension, right? So again, like you may have some soreness and there's nothing wrong with that. That's typically going to be an ex 
like experience as a byproduct doing things right but being sore isn't necessarily going to correlate with like hey we did or didn't have an effective training session and then metabolic stress we can essentially look at as like hey maybe we could use this as a way to increase mechanical tension while using lighter loads um but again it's not going to be a primary driver so we're focusing mostly on mechanical tension so i was having a conversation with brian borstein actually talking about brian a lot on this podcast (laughs) around same muscle group supersets and he posed the question to me like if we're looking at basically do you think that mechanical tension or progressive overload is more important for muscle growth and i'm just interested in your thoughts so for example if we did like a pre-exhaust chest superset versus Hey, we're doing straight sets so we can lift heavier loads. Do you think one of those is necessarily superior to the other for hypertrophy? Does that question make sense? A little bit. Uh, we're looking at intensity techniques versus straight sets. And essentially, my whole thing with intensity techniques, and we actually have a question about this. I'm not a huge fan of intensity techniques, to be honest with you. And there are some that I am. But whenever I utilize a, uh, an intensity technique, my biggest caveat to utilizing an intensity technique whether it be a same muscle group superset or it's a cluster set or anything of that sort, is I want to make sure that none of these techniques sacrifice mechanical tension on the target musculature. So if you're able to do a same muscle group superset and increase mechanical tension and still have sufficient, you know, have sufficient load, sufficient tension and drive the same amount of volume, I think that it will have either equivalent or better outcomes. We have to look at total work equation or total work equated. And so if you see that you're increasing systemic stress or systemic fatigue as a result of doing the same muscle group superset, and you're unable to do equivalent volume than if you did straight sets, you're most likely not going to get the same outcomes. And we actually see that within the advanced or within the the intensity uh, technique literature on drop sets and things of that sort, like you're doing higher intensity, you know, you feel like you're putting in more exertion, but a lot of times because the fatigue indices have risen so much, same thing with like failure training. So for instance, a great example of this is we have a bunch of research on failure to non-failure training. And really what we see in the literature for hypertrophy is between one and three reps away from failure generally will equal greater hypertrophy outcomes than going to failure if sets are equated. So the reason for that is if it's not work equated, so say they just did three sets and three sets and in the um, in the uh, failure training, they they were able to equate or do more reps total because they went to failure. Then they're going to get a better hypertrophy outcome. But if you really look at the studies that look at total training volume, which group was able to maintain a higher level of work capacity? Generally, we see that like saying one to two reps away from failure is generally going to have better hypertrophy outcomes because say you do um, you do three sets to failure at ten reps, you know. So the first the first set you know, one group goes to failure, they do 10 reps, but then they get eight reps on the next one and four reps on the next set. Right then and there, they got 22 reps across those sets. However, say if the other group did three three sets at a one to two IRR. So the first set, they get nine reps. The second set, they get eight reps. And the second or the third set, they get eight reps. They got 25 reps. So technically they did more work and they got a better hypertrophy outcome because they stayed further away from failure. And so that's where we have to really look at it. Is it work equated? Is it allowing you, is this technique something that you can acclimate to and that you're adjusted to and are able to drive a better training stimulus as a result of? And for some people, it's really going to depend on the individual. So for, I know with some of my clients, they cannot do same muscle group supersets. And we don't really see great outcomes from same muscle group supersets. We do see from antagonist supersets. That actually we see a priming effect. And we often see with certain same muscle group supersets, which is one of my one of my favorite advanced training techniques, we actually see more work being done. You know, by pairing with, with antagonist supersets. With antagonist supersets, you're doing like a chest to back superset. It matters on the on the um the pairing of the two, but we see that sometimes you could drive greater amounts of, of training volume as compared to doing them you know, separated. So it really matters total work being able to be equated. Um, but generally I'm going to, I'm going to see like an equivalent outcome in most cases. Interesting. Okay. In the last year, like kind of the training rabbit hole that I've gone down, whereas previously it was a lot more specific, specific to same muscle group supersets. And this is a topic I need to not get too deep into because I could 
feel like I could ask questions about this for like an hour, but it's been interesting. Like the last year, like that before we started working together, kind of the rabbit hole I was going down, there were a lot more same muscle group supersets implemented. And it's interesting to hear like kind of everyone's different rationale as far as that goes, but okay, cool. I feel like we're getting way off top of the original question. Oh, no worries. Let me ask you this though. If you were doing a same muscle group superset and you were to, have you ever done comparative, like an AB testing? So say you did a same muscle group superset, give me your favorite same muscle group superset. Mm, my favorite same muscle group superset would probably be like a shortened overload into a lengthened overload for side delts. Honestly, past that, unless I'm just like chasing a crazy pump, but I'm not a huge fan of like a chest fly into like a dumbbell bench press, but or something of that nature. I mean, typically it would be, but uh, let's say, okay, let's just rock with like that sh- cable chest fly into a dumbbell bench press. Okay. So when you're doing both of those together, what <laughs> is your rep drop off like set to set? What is your rest interval in between those same muscle group supersets? Are you seeing that you need to elongate that longer than you would with a uh, straight set? For sure to match reps. Yeah. So you're going to have to use, so it's really going to come down to at that point, we're going to have to utilize longer rest periods, which I am a fan of, Mm -hmm. but some people, they're not going to have that time. So that's where like we get into the argument, which we actually got posed that question, which I'm a fan of longer. We got you know, we're getting into way ahead on questions, but rest, rest intervals. But for some people, I'm going to have to make them, I'm going to have to program them to have higher volumes because A, they don't have the attention span to do longer rest intervals. They just don't like it. So now we have to make up for the work that they're lacking because their work capacity is dropping due to utilizing shorter rest intervals, or they don't have the time allocation. So we're having to make up with it by doing more training volume throughout the course of the week. So generally what we see is like, you have to either equate that volume or do more to get a better training stimulus. But I would almost argue that if we could do like, and again, I'm not, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Like I, I, program super similar to how you program but it would seem you can make the argument that hey if we do like it's specifically for the individual that is short on time if we did do like that if we wanted them to do okay we want to do like a shortened movement for the chest and we want to do a lengthened movement for the chest within this training day if we did that as a superset well yes we may have to rest a little bit longer between like we can still accrue a large amount of volume and mechanical tension by doing that in a superset as opposed to like if they're time limited we do a bench press, we rest two minutes, we do three rounds, and then we do a chest fly, we rest 90 seconds to two minutes. Does that make sense? Oh, no, absolutely. No, I do agree with you on that. If if they're both in the same context, they both are limited on time, we can maximize that. Also based on, you know, I also go back to client psychology too, man. Like we have to think about the neurological profile. So like if some people, they see that type of same muscle group superset, they already get burnt, burnt out just thinking about the process. So a lot of times I'm asking people like, what are your preference? Some people, they get like overwhelmed with having mm-hmm. to do that. They get like systemically taxed, like just thinking about going to one to the other. And then some people, they live for that. They want to get a great pump. They want to feel that lactate accumulation. And so that's where it's really, we have to remember that coaching is both a science and an art, especially within programming. Absolutely. Cool. All right. I think we beat that one to death. So we've already kind of talked about this, but the next question is what is your favorite advanced training technique? I would say they're like, similar to you, I don't use a lot of like, Hey, we're going to use a lot of drop sets or anything of that nature. I would actually say that the one I program the most is going to be that same muscle group superset for side delts very similarly for like large compound movements i typically outside of antagonist supersets which like in an upper body day i find to like make it work within a kind of time constraint i'm like programming an antagonist superset quite often but i do have a lot of clients that work with a lot of women and like medial delts specifically are typically a little bit more of a priority and that is one where i found that like we can really if we do a same muscle now it's not necessarily that this is superior to like us doing like a shortened overload movement and then a lengthened overload movement or vice versa with just like straight sets. But if we go like, it's essentially a mechanical drop set, right? If we go like a short mm-hmm. overload, like let's say a dumbbell lateral raise or even like a low cable lateral raise into like a wrist high cable lateral raise, for example, where we're going to basically be taken to the point where we're failing in that shortened range, but we're still going to be able to squeeze a little bit more out of that like mid range to lengthen where we're typically a little bit stronger. So then we're like basically progressing it to a variation where we're, um, going to be a little bit stronger as we fail in the short end i people people really enjoy that you get a nasty <laughs> pretty bro here but yeah, you, you get, get a, nasty you get a side great pump. pump also we have to think about it as each muscle as an independent um target 
So like with your side delts, most people aren't going to get systemically taxed and really get like annihilated to the point where it's going to affect the rest of their training. But if we did that the same way within quads or within back training, we're going to have see more of like a rollover effect from the fatigue that was accumulated and generated from that same muscle group superset that might impair the rest of their training. So that's where I kind of think of it because I utilize generally more like a higher frequency routine first and foremost. And second of all, I'm hitting multiple muscle groups. So a lot of times I'll have people on upper lowers. So we have, if they hit a same muscle group superset for back, say, they still have chest hit. They might still have delts hit. So we have, you know, with the deltoids, it's something we could definitely tack on, especially at the end of the workout, like just burn that shit out and get a great pump, you know, and really economize on time. But when it comes to, for me, I mentioned previously, but you know, when it comes to um, intensity techniques, I don't use, utilize a lot of. I really do favor um, straight sets, mostly because it's easier to track and track progression on. You know what I mean? Like it's more standardized. But if I'm trying to really maximize on time, I do find a massive benefit from antagonist supersets. And we see that in some of the literature, we see a priming effect and that it helps with active recovery. So going from like a chest movement to a back movement. Um, so going from like a bench press or to a row, that's what most of the literature has, or like a leg curl to a leg extension. And then we're also going to have that increased time efficiency of workouts. So we're not getting like a crossover effect from systemic fatigue because we're actually seeing active recovery by utilizing the antagonist muscle group, but we're also getting that benefit of economizing on time so that we can get someone that has is time poor or time limited, um, you know, in and out in a much shorter and more efficient fashion. And it also, I really, um, you know, I get a lot of people that have a sporting background, whether it was, you know, they did CrossFit or they did some type of athletic endeavor, you know, a lot of MMA guys, and they really like that. They kind of favor uh, circuit type type of training, like metabolic uh, style training. So sometimes I will do like a full day of just antagonist supersets just okay. to kind of like appease them on that that front. But also what's interesting about antagonist supersets is there is some research that looks at doing like a squat to a, a row. And I, you know, they don't really tease this out in the actual literature, but they see a negative effect from those type of antagonist supersets. And I would think it's because it's hitting so much musculature. So think okay. about it, like, you know, two large compound movements really hitting like your legs and then your back. So we do see that, but um, for the most part, we see positive effects. And then the other advanced training technique that I actually really like to use, and this isn't something I utilize with all clients, but I might throw it in at the end of a mesocycle where we're getting close to the end phase where I can really, you know, kind of drive that systemic fatigue is um, to do length and partials. So essentially this would be to do, to continue doing partials in the length and position when the strength curve doesn't favor a full range of motion. So what I would, I really utilize this pretty much only with, with back movements at this point. So I might utilize it with a row or generally I'm going to utilize it with a pull down. And so we know like say with an, a one arm cable pull down, the hardest part of the movement is going to be when it's closest to your body in the short position. So a lot of times, I mean, you know, every time that I've, I've been, I've encountered that I'll hit failure in the short position before the length of position, whereas we still have partials and we still have juice left that we can get from that lengthened position. So I like doing, you know, a couple extra reps within that mid and lengthened position. And then we also know from especially a lot of the literature as of the last two years is that that lengthened position is more hypertrophic than the shortened position. So this is another way that we could kind of really get an overload or a little bit extra stimulus within that lengthened, that lengthened range. So I do like utilizing those as well. Okay. So within that, like a short position overload, which is going to be most of our back training, unless we have like specialty equipment. What do you consider failure? Are you typically like, Hey, I'm failing in the short position or are you almost always like trying to squeeze out a few length and partials as well? Or is that only when it's programmed specifically? Program specifically. Okay. So I util- I usually will have them fail in the shortened position the first few weeks of the mesocycle. And then I'm looking at performance indicators and I'm also seeing their, their recovery metrics. How is their recovery going? What is their soreness like? What is their pump within those training days? And sometimes maybe say we're doing, you know, you know, personally that I don't utilize like a stock standard six week mesocycle. So it's going to be based on that person's rate of progress. But say, for instance, I already have that on this individual. Uh, perfect example is Anthony. I've trained Anthony for two plus years. So there are going to be times within the context of his training where we get to week six or seven and he's still, you know, he's still got a little bit left in the tank, but we're at zero RRR. So he has been failing in that shortened position 
for his back movements. So I might take a one arm unilateral cable pull down or an iliac pull down, like, you know, Cass would say, um, and I might add in lengthened partials. And maybe we, we might start with, I want you to do two to three lengthened partials after hitting failure within the shortened range. So just do two, three as, as you can. And then the next week, if he's still, his recovery metrics are still there. If he's not showing signs of being overreached, I might have him try to get more lengthened. So hit the same amount of reps in the shortened position, hit failure, and then go to failure within the lengthened range before we go into a deload, we we drop and dissipate fatigue, and then go back into the course of the next mesocycle. But I generally, it's not something that I've programmed since week one of a mesocycle and ridden all the way through. Okay. I like that. That's a really cool way to progress at the end of the mesocycle. I feel like logistically, it's a little bit harder actually to gauge and progress if you were starting mm-hmm. a mesocycle like that. Okay, cool. And that was the whole thing. So I actually experimented with that where I will tell you, and here was my issue. I was starting my mesocycle three to four reps away from failure at week one. So I wasn't actually failing in the shortened position. So what I noticed was if I really went to failure in the length and after not going to failure in the shortened, I could get five or six uh, you know, um, partials within the length of position. But by the end of my mesocycle, when I hit zero reps in reserve on that, sh- on that short position, then I could only get three in the length. Right. And so now I'm like, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a very analytical individual. So I'm looking at my logbook and I'm like, all right, well, I progress reps on my shortened failure, but now my plus, cause I always, I write it as say that I started the mesocycle three reps in reserve and that was nine reps, but I knew I could do 12 at the end of that mesocycle. I have 12 reps on that, but I started with nine plus five and now I'm 12 plus three you know what i mean and so it just didn't to me like it was just kind of killing me from a a conceptual basis no i agree that's like how how would we measure that as well specifically when we're going to client okay cool next up we have how long should we rest between sets all right so um with clients what i like to do i often suggest they take longer rest intervals of around three minutes so that's usually like my go-to stock standard um rest interval for most exercises especially if they have the time to allocate towards those rest intervals and the reason for this is not only from like in the trenches that i see that people recover better and i get better feedback from that but the majority of the research we have on this shows that we have a, a benefit from longer rest intervals and rest periods between sets as compared to um short rest intervals. So for example, I know Brad Schoenfeld has done a few studies, but particularly has one study that compared three minute rest intervals versus one minute rest intervals. And they showed greater muscle growth in the three minute rest interval group. And in all the research we have where sets are equated, the longer rest periods lead to greater growth than the short rest periods. And we got to think about that from like a logistical standpoint. If you're resting longer, it's going to lead to greater recovery intra-session. So in between sets, and you're going to have a better ability to not only do more work, whether that means to get more reps set to set, see less rep drop off. So you're going to have better work capacity, but you're also going to be most likely able to lift heavier loads. You're not going to have to decrease the load on the bar or, you know, the dumbbell, whatever it may be in between sets due to accumulating as much fatigue and metabolic byproducts. Cause we see with shorter rest periods, we are going to see more metabolic stress, but because I really don't see that as an independent causative factor of, you know, a, a driver of hypertrophy, I'm not chasing that. So it's not like I need a client to get that. So dissipating that is no issue. Right. And so my whole thing is how can we increase mechanical tension? And one way to do that is utilizing longer rest intervals. Now it is important to note that we can make up for this. So there are studies that are work equated, not set equated. So work equated means they're doing the same amount of total work volume. And so within that, we see equal growth between long and short rest intervals. But in order to do equal work with short rest intervals, you're going to have to do more total sets. So for me, a lot of times, yes, sometimes that will save someone more time if they're really maximizing the time that they're, they're utilizing. But often I find that people, and, and sometimes I'll ask a client, they'll, they'll say, listen, I got to get in and out, or I like short rest intervals. And I'll ask them to time their session from this time. You know, sometimes I'll have them take a, t- a stopwatch and I do this myself and I'll have them time this, the time that they start their first working set. And then, you know, obviously clock out the minute they, they finish their last working set. And generally I see them utilize the same amount of time for the most part when it comes down to it, when utilizing short rest intervals and having to utilize more sets as compared to usually utilizing longer rest intervals and utilizing less sets. So for me, you know, 
I would rather get better quality, focus on quality of work mm-hmm. over quantity of work, especially initially. And we also see like, for instance, we discussed this on, I don't know if it was on our podcast that we did a, a coach's roundtable with, with Jeff or on his. However, we look at like the meta regressions that James Krieger has done, and he's got this range of effective volume per session, and it's generally between six and 10. And if you actually look at the, the meta regressions within that analysis, which you guys could see on his uh, site, Weightology, he'll actually actually show that with longer rest intervals, you can get a very effective training stimulus from six sets. Whereas if you're utilizing short rest intervals, you want to be closer to that 10 to 12 sets. And the reason for that is because if you really think about it, if you're seeing rep drop off because you're utilizing short rest intervals, you're going to have to do more of those sets to equate that same amount of total work. So really when it comes down to it, it's, it's total work over time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I fully agree with all of that. As far as rest periods go, again, there is going to be some aspect of what's realistic for the client, right? So a lot of times, like it might mean for an isolation movement, we might program a 90 second rest or sometimes shit that'll even get down to 60 seconds rest on occasion. But again, it's all going to be based on where the client is coming from. Also, I think like being able to differentiate between local fatigue and systemic fatigue is going to be an important part when we're looking at your rest periods. Like just because like we'll have this peripheral fatigue. So like your biceps stop burning, for example, that doesn't mean immediately we're good to go because we also have to understand. And I think we've already kind of touched on the concept of systemic fatigue, but basically think like your nervous system is more fatigued and needs to recover between sets as well. So if we haven't, like, even if it is like, man, my biceps don't burn anymore, so I'm good to go. Well, if you haven't been able to dissipate a good amount of that systemic fatigue, our body won't actually be as good at firing as many muscle fibers. So we won't be able to get as much out of like that following set. So like typically I think that for most, and just to throw like general numbers out there, I think 90 to 120 seconds rest between most isolation movements. And I would really err, like if you have the time closer to two minutes between most of those movements, it's a pretty good rule of thumb. And then compound movements, typically I'm going to aim for three minutes rest if it's feasible and realistic for the client. And I mean, some, some movements shit, it might be longer than that. If you can take time, like between a set of split squats or brutal hack squats, like shit, you might need to get up closer to four to five minutes if time allows for it. But generally, yeah, I'm going to lean towards longer rest periods as well. Yeah. And actually, I really like that you hit on that because I meant to hit on that as well. There are differences in exercise selection and also the range of motion that that movement overloads you in. So if I'm utilizing a compound movement with a client that overloads in the lengthened position, that's going to be more damaging. That's going to be more systemically fatiguing. Let's also look at the reps in reserve we're using. If we're at the last week of the mesocycle and they're going to failure, that zero reps in reserve, I'm going to very much encourage them to utilize longer rest periods. Rest until you feel ready to go again, because I want, we want to maximize performance. A lot of times, yes, this is a physique sport, but it's still a sport. Like we're still trying to improve performance over time. And not that we're going to see performance increases week to week, especially as we get more advanced. However, we should still go in with every session with the intention of progression, whether we get it or not, that's besides the case. It is about the intention to progress and to provide an overloading stimulus. So if it is a isolation movement, it's a bicep curl, it's the same concept where you're not going to incur as much fatigue right. and you're going to be able to, those are smaller muscle groups, smaller muscle, uh, musculature, less systemic fatigue overall. It's not going to have as much carryover to other body parts where we can kind of leverage that and utilize like an undulating or a descending uh, rest period. So essentially we do see in some literature where you can get acclimated to utilizing shorter rest periods, but it is when you utilize, you, you acclimate your body to it over time. So I think in one of the studies they did it where they brought them down from either three or two minutes um, by 30 seconds every week. And they saw less of a performance drop off than when they just took a group from say three minutes down to one minute from week one. And so really the body can acclimate to anything. You can build work capacity, but also we have to look at it from what is the actual movement that we're utilizing is a compound multi-joint movement. That's, you know, hitting multiple muscle groups, or is it an isolation movement at the end of your session, you've already gotten the work, the most of your work done, and it's not going to bleed over into the rest of your session where it's going to impair performance. 
and recovery set to set for the rest of your session. So that's where I'd be more inclined to actually utilize shorter rest periods towards the end of a session, despite having higher levels of fatigue. However, we also, it's less bleed over into the other, you know, if we already hit our like key performance indicators. So if you already hit your big compound basics, which you really were trying to um, see a progression in, especially in terms of like reps, uh, you know, rep strength or load progression, then from there, if we're trying to really maximize on time, that's where I'll utilize a different rest uh, interval. So I'll do three minutes at the front of a session with some compound movements and then maybe move on to two minutes or 90 seconds to 120 seconds on, you know, some isolation movements or even 60 seconds on those latter isolation movements at the end of the workout. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, man. All right. Next up we have, what is the most important part of a training program? And I'm going to take this from the angle of hypertrophy as it seems that this is very much what those conversations have been geared around. Uh, man, I think this ties into our first question. I would say for hypertrophy, it's going to be mechanical tension, which is going to then tie into a couple different factors. So one, from a mechanical tension perspective, like your execution of the movements, I don't think you have to be extremely caught up and I have the most supreme form, but we do need to have an adequate level of execution within a movement to actually apply tension to the target tissue, right? If it's like a, if you're doing a, whatever heel elevated back squat trying to target your quads and the entire the movement is essentially your hips are shooting way back and you are essentially doing a good morning okay we're still not going to get as much tension as we want in our quads right so there's gonna have to be an adequate level of um an adequate level of execution and then also our proximity to failure is going to be an important this is a hard thing actually <laughs> to dictate because we're going to need a baseline level of basically we're going to need, a need all the level. variables right. volume intensity everything exactly we're going to need a baseline level of volume we're going to need a baseline level of execution and we're going to need a baseline level of intensity right so essentially we're going to i mean we're probably going to spend most of our time in the 5 to 15 rep range we're probably going to going to be one going to want to train somewhere between one to three RAR most of the time. But I also don't, I don't like these things are interrelated. We can't necessarily tease out, which is the most important. So we need adequate RAR. We need adequate technique. We need adequate volume, which is going to vary a lot individual to individual, but it's going to be a combination of all those three factors, which are going to add up to the tension that we get in the training session. But I don't think I can tease out just one of those. All right, so I'm going to take this in slightly a different direction because um, I know that most people would say like they would isolate something. Like, I think volume is a key driver, the most important part of a processor. I really like how you came at it from multiple aspects, but when I really try to isolate it down, what comprises everything that you just went into? It was some type of progression within that. We had to press, we had to meet a sufficient stimulus. And so in my mind, when someone would ask me this, you know, a client would ask me this, I believe the most important component of a training program would it be ensuring you have a sufficient amount of overload. So within the overload, we want to make sure that we're meeting or exceeding a sufficient stimulus that's required to produce an adaptation from training. Um, so from my perspective, like this is super important because we must meet a sufficient level of tension stimulus to cause the process of muscle growth. Because if we don't do that, you know, we don't have sufficient tension. And now tension is comprised by having a sufficient level of volume, because that's the dose of the tension, and then the magnitude of the tension from intensity. So without a sufficient amount of tension, like we bring it back to mechanical tension, is we won't even be able to kick off the process because really muscle growth comes down to an increase in muscle protein synthesis and getting our safe getting ourselves in a state of positive protein balance. Right. And to do that, we need to have tension. That's, you know, just like I'm going to go back to tension is the key driver hypertrophy. So I think this is where like progressive overload comes in as this is achieved when we meet this requisite level of tension uh, stimulus and see a progression in performance as a result. So, you know, over time, we're going to need to increase the stimulus within our training as our training capacity improves and develops. And we know as we, you know, we train, we experience both neurological and muscular adaptations. So over time, the this, this stimulus needs to increase to ensure that we continue to adapt and progress. So this is really where I come back to the fact that I, I mentioned previously that I really think that we need to go into each session looking to exceed last week's performance you know, kind of like, you know, Greg Desette says, do more than last time. I don't think like, you know, that's like a, a really simplistic way to put it across, but sometimes it really helps clients to just say, do more than last time, you know, do 
it's not more is more, but it's it's almost like do better than last time. But also, I think we we at the other side, like to play devil's advocate, we also have to realize that progressing session to session isn't necessary from an overload perspective, as none of us can literally progress, you know, our training week in and week out for the entirety of our training career. Because if we could, we'd be Ronnie Coleman or we'd be the world's strongest man. Right. Or so really within my own programming, what I'm looking to do is to overload the stimulus in any manner that I can that's going to increase the amount of mechanical tension that I'm placing on that target musculature. So, and this is really where I love hypertrophy training. So I have done some strength training for people. I've worked with some strongman competitors, worked with MMA athletes, some what we would consider mixed modal athletes. But I really always come back to bodybuilding because, you know, when we look at hypertrophy, it's such a forgiving stimulus. Mm -hmm. So really within the context of progressive overload or just overload in general, because progressive overload is essentially we are keeping pace with our adaptations, but just the concept of overload, we can do that in so many ways. So we can increase load. We can increase reps across a set or with a, within a given load. We can increase our level of relative intensity um, through, you know, descending or reducing our reps in reserve. We can increase our number of sets. We can increase the training frequency to increase the total weekly training volume and the quality of that volume. So there's so many different aspects and manner, manners that we can go about increasing that tension stimulus. And that is really what I think is the fundamental backbone to every program. So if we look at Oftentimes, we have these compare and contrast camps within training or within nutrition, and they're always like at each other's throats. So we have the volume camp and we have the intensity camp. Right. But what really underlies all of this? We need each of them are getting a sufficient amount of stimulus, and each of them are shooting for some level of progressive overload, whether it's through set progressions or it's through intensity progression and load progressions. They're all doing so like the underlying foundation to all these programs are some level of overload. So really, if someone asked me, what's the most important component of a training program, it'd be progressive overload. Okay. I love it. I think that's a very, you tie that up very nicely. Um, how much more time do you have, dude? Um, I got like 20 minutes, a little under. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. So I want to ask you about supplementing with Yohimbine for fat loss. I know this is something that has been in my protocol and I'm just interested kind of the reasoning behind that. I know like for a long time in the industry, you'll hear, or like, as I was kind of coming up in the industry, like the idea of using like quote unquote fat burning supplements is kind of something that is poo-pooed. And I know mm -hmm. specifically like Yohimbine and Yohimbine and fasted cardio is something that you often see paired together. So can you kind yes. of just talk us through that a bit, like why you might implement that, or if that is something you would recommend implementing? Yeah. So obviously it's going to depend on the individual. So I don't want to make this, I never talk about supplements. I actually come from the supplement industry, but I never talk about supplements because it is context dependent, it is very dependent on the individual. However, we have to think about the context in which I'm utilizing it with. So I'll describe him being a little bit in general, and then I'll go into why I have you specifically utilizing it. And then also where it will fall into with fasted cardio or fasted aerobic training. And so really what Yohimbine does is it helps you. It's an alpha antagonist. So essentially what it does is it helps you block the alpha-2 receptors, um, which are going to increase catecholamine production, especially norepinephrine, which will allow us to not only mobilize, but burn body fat more efficiently. Okay. And so it essentially blunts and inhibits the activity of alpha-2 uh, adrenergic receptors. And what happens is we have beta receptors and we have um, alpha receptors. Now, beta receptors are like the gas. So they're going to allow for lipolysis. But alpha receptors, when they're activated, they almost put like a break on the system. So they don't allow for lipolysis. So we actually see like uh, women actually have a very much higher density of alpha receptors, especially in their hips and thighs than men do. And that's why we see stubborn fat in that area. We actually see with men, oftentimes we'll have more alpha receptors and our low stomach and back. And that's why we have stubborn body fat. So often I'll utilize this in two specific cases. I'll use well, three specific cases, to be honest with you. So one is when I'm trying to get someone extremely lean. So in your case, I put it in, we were doing a mini cut, which is essentially a modified rapid fat loss. And we're trying to get to very low levels of body fat. So anything that could help with mobilizing and oxidizing body fat is going to help that process. Now, here's the thing. The reason that we I had you do it specifically prior to facet cardio or, or facet steps, essentially, was because you have him being, a lot of people don't realize this, and they'll actually put you him being in their pre-workout, or you'll see it in pre-workout products. And if you actually know the mechanisms of action behind your him being, you'll realize that's highly ineffective. And it's actually, it's not actually utilizing or taking advantage of the supplement for what it was designed for. So a lot of times you'll see in supplements, pre-workouts, they'll say, you know, um, 
this is going to help with fat burning because yohimbine independently will help with mobilizing fat, you know, body fat. However, it doesn't work with the, within the presence of insulin. So for instance, if you were to have a pre-workout meal and then you had your, you know, you had your uh, pre-workout, um, you know, supplement that had yohimbine in it, it wouldn't work. So anytime that you you secrete insulin through the ingestion of carbohydrates or even protein, you're going to negate the fat loss effects of yohimbine. And this needs to be done. This is why yohimbi needs to be essentially taken in a non-insulogenic state. So that's where it pairs well with, with fasted cardio. Because think about it. If you're in a fasted state, you're going to be more likely to oxidize, mobilize, oxidize, and burn fatty acids for energy. Because you have been fasted for a prolonged period of time. Sleep, you're, you're oxidizing more fat for energy during sleep. And, and that's because you're utilizing your resting metabolic rate, which works off of aerobic um, metabolism. And so you're going to be utilizing preferentially fat for energy during that fasted aerobic activity because you don't have any substrate in the system. And so this is just going to help you increase that catecholamine production and increase that mobilization of you know, fatty acids, which will hopefully come from stubborn body fat. So I've just found it to be, you know, personally in practice, I found it to be a effective way to help with clients that have stubborn body fat, especially females. You know, I've, I've utilized this many of times with females, but I only utilize it in a fasted state and with paired with some type of aerobic training. Okay. So, and that's seems that's interesting because I was literally just listening to a podcast yesterday where they were discussing it seeming to be more effective with women than men, but they didn't have the reasoning for why. But it's, I forget even what type of receptors you said there. So it's alpha receptors. So really what we see is women, and we know this, I mean, you work with more females than I do, but I'm sure we could both attest to this, that a lot of times we see with females, and this is, we know this from evolution, like women have more stubborn body fat in their hips and thighs. And this is essentially an evolutionary mechanism that ensures they have enough fat, Mm -hmm. you know, energy on their body to promote pregnancy and support childbirth. And so this, you know, I believe, and, and. You know, I don't want to put this quote out there, but I'm almost sure, I'm almost positive that it's women have seven times more alpha receptors in their hips and thighs than they do anywhere else in their body. And that's why they predominantly hold. They also have more alpha receptors than do men. So I do find this to be a little bit more efficacious for my females. However, it is, I found it to be beneficial with both males and females. However, it's, it's within context. So here's the thing. We have a lot of research on, well, uh, you know, a decent amount of research on fasted cardio and we don't see this is the issue. We don't see statistically significant differences between fasted and fed cardio. When we look at Brad Schoenfeld's study, now here are the caveats to that. And a lot of people don't look into this is a, they're not done in very lean individuals. So when you are at a higher body fat percentage, you can mobilize body fat much easier. However, as you get leaner, it's harder to mobilize body fat. You have less on, of it on your body and it gets to the point where it's harder to get to those stubborn areas. And that's why a lot of us notice that we might've lost a ton of body fat from areas like I'll lose it off my face. You'll see your extremities. Like women will get, for instance, the perfect example, I'll always see my, my female clients, they'll get, an, they'll get abs, say they're dieting with their husband. They'll get abs, they'll get ripped delts, you know. All that kind of stuff way before their legs get lean, but their husbands will be the opposite. They'll be getting, you know, the husbands will get lean in the arms, you know, kind of from the face down, but they won't get the abs until the last portion, abs and low back. So it's, we store body fat differently, both person to person, but also uh, sex to sex. And so within that, this is going to help with that. However, when we look at fasted cardio studies, it's never done in the context with supplementation. So we never utilize things that help to oxidize and mobilize fat. So we know that caffeine does that. Caffeine is a lipolytic agent. It helps to increase fat burning. But we never see fasted cardio where we're pairing. And this is something that physique athletes, like I train many competitors over the years. I'm going to use caffeine. I'm going to use yohimbine. These are both things that are going to increase fatty acid mobilization and oxidation. You're going to burn more fatty acids during that aerobic activity than you would without that. However, when we look at the fasted versus fed cardio, we don't see statistically significant differences. However, if you actually look at Brad Schoenfeld's study, you look through the methods, you look through the findings, you will see a non-statistically significant or a non-significant difference between the fasted group and the fed group. Now, this was only a four-week time course. So say we were to do that over a 12 to 16-week diet with leaner individuals, and then we were to pair in caffeine and Yohimbi, we could see a, a big difference. So yeah, over the course of uh, a four-week intervention, they might have only seen a pound difference in fat loss, but over the context of 16 weeks, that'd be four pounds. 
Now add on caffeine and yohimbine. That might be go from four pounds to eight pounds. All of a sudden, you've lost eight pounds of fat loss just from doing your the same amount of aerobic activity you would have done throughout the day, just fasted and with two supplements. I mean, there could be a compounding effect to these things. And that's where, you know, science meets practice, but we have to realize that research only gives us so much. It gives us a guideline, but it doesn't tell us like what practice or what things to put into practice. It gives us, we have to realize that science really, and a lot of people, they don't realize science only tells us, it doesn't tell us what's optimal. It tells us what's better between two options or three options. It says A is better than B, but it doesn't say, you know, A is the most optimal method of doing something. It puts us in the direction. And then us as coaches, that's where we take the science. And then we, we apply the art of coaching and our experience to the individual that we're working with and looking at their biofeedback, looking at the rate of progress and really trying to maximize everything that we can to get them the best results possible. Absolutely. Okay. That's super helpful. And then with that, one other caveat I would say is you probably want to be careful with your caffeine selection. And again, like when we're looking at fasted. So for example, if you are like taking in coffee and you're like putting a bunch of creamer in it, or you're like oh yeah, drinking a Red Bull that has like 25 grams of carbs, for example, like we need to consider again, like, as you said, in, if we are also spiking insulin within that, we're not going to get the same benefits from it. Sure. I mean, Jeremiah, you know this, but I specifically say not to utilize, um, energy drinks in that fast because I have a fasted fat loss stack for you. Mm -hmm. And then also I will say black coffee specifically. Now I generally will recommend just caffeine and hydrous, or if you have a fat burner that you like an over-the-counter fat burner that has caffeine, I really just want the caffeine from it. Right. But if you have a, a, some people like some of the nootropics that are in fat burners, all well and good. But as long as it's calorie free, we just want to make sure that it's, you're not getting that insulin release. That's going to block the, um, the ability for your to maximize or exert its actions actually. Okay. Because here's the thing. So say that, you know, and this is just a caveat because I, I'm sure people will ask me after the fact, well, what happens if I utilize it and, you know, is it still going to increase catecholamine production? It's just not going to have the benefit of actually mobilizing as many fatty acids as it would if you had no insulin present in your system. Also, it is something, as we've discussed, that some people can have um, an increase in anxiety from. So like now you're getting the drawbacks. I always say forever, give me, there's a gotcha. So often I'm going to utilize this and I might titrate it or, you know, there's certain receptors that some people are more uh, sensitive to, or um, essentially what ends up happening is they need to use a different form of it. So like, for instance, I recommended alpha yohimbine that doesn't have the anxiety side effect. However, if you're going to get a, a, any type of side effect, whether it's anxiety or increased energy or jitteriness, but then you're not getting the fat loss benefit. It, you just null and voided it. And so when I see it in fat loss or I see it in pre-workouts where oftentimes people aren't going to use a pre-workout in a, in a completely fasted state. And then often those pre-workouts have calorie containing items in it, whether it's glycerol, whether it's artificial sweeteners with dextrose, it has a little carbohydrates in there. They're defeating the purpose. And, and that's really where I, I often find that the supplement industry goes wrong. And I'll say this from a critical perspective, having worked in it for 14 years, is they, they throw in things because they're able to make claims. Yes, independently in research studies, there's one research study in soccer players that did see a significant increase in fat loss from utilizing a efficacious dose of yohimbine compared to the group that did not utilize it when doing aerobic training. However, if you're utilizing it and you're already in a fed state, you're not getting that benefit. So yes, you could put it on there with a little asterisk, increases fat loss because there's a study that links back to it, but you're, you're kind of undoing it with the fact that most people are not going to use your, your pre-workout supplement in a fasted state. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like we should have set you up for a lot of supplement questions this coming week, man. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's try to bust this last one out here quick. I know you got to run here pretty shortly, which is should we increase sets week to week in a proactive or reactive manner? I always lean towards reactive. Um, I don't, I'm really not a big fan of like us proactively every week. We're going to follow the same set progression. I think we've talked on this quite frequently. I would much rather look at, Hey, how's your pump? How's your disruption? How's this increasing? And then like, if we need to be able to pull that lever of, Hey, let's add a set to this specific movement. We can like when it's called for, but I would prefer to wait until we actually need that. And we can actually like, we have evidence that that would yield quicker progress before we're just like going to pull that lever immediately. 
Absolutely. So you and I have had chats about this, you know, obviously in terms of programming off air, but I like to personally take a reactive approach to increasing sets across the course of a mesocycle based on auto regulation and a client's feedback or biofeedback rather than pre-programming set increases. And I always say this within any context of coaching, I am not about set and forget. So it's not, and you know, this within you, you know, working with me, everything's going to be on a week to week basis. And really, my goal is to progress the stimulus of a program as the client adapts, not preemptively. And that's really where I have an issue with the proactive manner of increasing sets, where some, you know, a coach will send you out a template and every week it's you're adding these sets to these movements or these body parts. And it's without considering the context of biofeedback. And that's really where we get to looking at are you coaching or are you programming? And coaching is, is really being in the moment and reacting to things. And I understand that sometimes clients don't understand that. And often I get clients from other coaches and they come from this react or this proactive manner where they were used to what the exact mesocycle was going to look like at week one. They knew when they were going to take a deload. And I understand from sometimes that looks really organized. However, that's really discounting all your biofeedback and every check-in you're going to have. So if a coach tells you, listen, you're going to run a five in one paradigm, you know, it's, it should be a little bit of suspect, right. you know, unless they've been working with you for a long time, you come to them, how are they able to predict that? And I feel as though almost everything within coaching should be done in an auto-regulatory manner based on a client's biofeedback, their body's response, and their rate of progress. So adjustments should be made on an as-need basis rather than just because it's week three of a mesocycle or it's this arbitrary week. It shouldn't be that we make arbitrary adjustments in advance without knowing what that person, someone's, you know, you work with someone for a long period of time, you might be able to predict a week ahead, but for you to be able to take on a brand new client and tell them what they're going to be able to do, you know, in six weeks without having any experience with them. I just think that's being a little bit too confident. And um, I think it's really important. I, I've been coaching for a long time and, you know, prior to, you know, last couple of years, that wasn't really like a method that I saw being utilized. I saw the set and forget method where there was no changes made, you know, they would give you a program for 12 weeks and you'd be done with it. But really, you know, it's only within the last couple of years that I've seen that proactive manner where it's like set increases week to week, regardless of what's going on in your lifestyle or your feedback or your check-ins. Um, and I think it's really important to be objective about our skills as coaches. And none of us, regardless of how experienced we are, can predict the future, nor how a client's going to respond and perform over the course of a mesocycle, nor what's going to come up with their life. And we have to realize that life is way too unpredictable to predict what variables are going to come up and change over the course of a week, let alone over an entire block of training. So really when it comes to set progressions or increasing sets over time, you know, I'm looking at stalls in terms of progress. I want to see what their performance is like, what their progress is like. And then I also want to analyze the rest of their check-in, rest of their biofeedback, and also look at are all the other, you know, boxes being checked off in terms of their nutrition, their compliance, their nutrition, their state of energy balance, their protein intake, their hydration levels, their sleep, their recovery, their stress management. And if this plateau isn't due to any of those variables being off or accumulated fatigue because they're at the end, they're, they're way deep into a mesocycle, then I'll add sets to ensure that we're progressing the training stimulus as they continue to adapt. However, without that, I'm not going to arbitrarily, you know, um, just throw out, you know, on week six, you're going to be at this volume because I cannot predict that. You know, I need to take it week by week, just like that client will have unexpected things come up. You know, I work with a lot of busy parents, business professionals, other coaches. We constantly have things that come up and there are things in life that we cannot predict or account for as us as individuals that are in our own bodies, let alone a coach. So I really think that taking a reactive approach or what I, I you know, reactive always sounds bad. So I really prefer this person. That's how they, they put it into the question. But I really like the auto-regulatory approach. Like I really like taking everything in an auto-regulated basis. I couldn't agree more, dude. I think you summed that up very well. All right, my man, I know you need to run here in the next minute. So any final thoughts, um, just to let people know like where they can find you, anything at all you'd like to plug outside of the norm? Yeah, no, let's do, uh, let's hit the last question. I got, I got okay, cool. uh, five minutes until I have to jump off. So oh, dope. Okay. How, how do you know if a muscle is recovered and can be trained again? All right. So real quick, I think we have to look over. I think people often don't realize what recovery is. They're only looking at like some subjective markers, but really like realize that recovery is a return to baseline. So once a muscle is back to its baseline level of training performance in terms of strength, or rep performance, that muscle is by definition recovered. So if you have either returned to your baseline strength 
or you're stronger at your next session than you were the last time you trained that same muscle group, you can take this as a sign that you've adequately recovered as you have not only returned to your baseline, which indicates recovery, but you've also you know, you've also positively adapted and have progressed since then. You've essentially super compensated. Right. So with my whole mindset, as long as you're not consistently seeing a drop off in performance from session to session within that muscle group or experiencing like crippling soreness, I think it's a sign that you're good to train that muscle group again. Okay. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think soreness is one of the most important variables there that we're typically looking at and then again how are you progressing like the next time you train that which should give you feedback for like in the future hey am i potentially doing too much volume am i do i need to pull back intensity things or am i just training like is am i trying to cram too much frequency here within this but um man i don't know think if i don't think i have too much else to add to that um cool dope i feel like we crushed all those man got through those a pretty good time um so per usual dude let everybody know where they can find you anything you'd like to plug Absolutely, my man. Well, you guys can feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore. Uh, feel free to reach out to me with any questions. Honestly, every week thus far, this is, this these questions have come from you guys. I'm actually, this week, we tried to do a training-oriented talk. So this was ad- advanced training concepts and training talk, essentially. So I'm going to try to organize them a little bit better because Jeremiah and I are going to do these quite frequently. Um, so feel free to reach out with any questions that you guys have or reach out to me via email, which is bdecruz. Uh, fitness at gmail.com perfect yeah i really enjoy this i like the theme of like the training q a i think that's a great way to kind of pair it all together and we appreciate all the great questions i really enjoy being able to do these every week and learn as well so um we will catch you guys next time